when I first started at college, the first lecture I was ever in, the lecturer said, we're not here to teach you facts. We're here to teach you where to find those facts. And I think that is such a good point that, you know, if you know where to look to find something, it doesn't matter that you don't know it at that time. Um, and, you know, I don't think it's sad that some people expect that you should just have all the answers at the tips of your fingers. It's, yeah, no, I can find out and it ought to do. Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast, the podcast for surveyors who just love what they do. I'm Marian Ellis, and in today's episode, I catch up with Catherine Laidley, Quantity Surveyor and Project Manager. Catherine was a founding member of QSI and the first female president of SCQS. Given the average length of RICS membership for a female is currently at around 16 years, I found it both remarkable and inspiring to learn Catherine has been in construction for over 50 years. That's five zero, not one five. So get your boots on if you're off for a walk while you listen, and I'll see you at the other end. Oh, and I'll be at the Saba Residential Careers Fair on the 29th of March in Coventry. Do pop along and say hello, and I'll put a link to the event in the show notes. So welcome to the podcast, Catherine. Thank you. Nice to talk to you again. It is, yeah. It's been a while, and I think, oh, I think I've passed across in lots of different ways over the years. I've seen your name about, and I know you've written a few different articles for different publications of have seen you you pop up, even though we're in different types of surveyor because you're a QS and project manager. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. So so look, introduce yourself. Tell the listeners a bit about Catherine and what right. kind of work do you do now? Right. I suppose I don't know much quantity surveying is a simple answer, but that happens to us all as we, we get further up the tree. I started life as a quantity surveyor on a degree course, a bachelor's de- degree course at Leeds Polytechnic in 1970. So it, I've just had my sort of 50th anniversary of that. It was difficult. I was the only girl on the course and I'd gone from a convent school, a girls' convent school, totally naive, no idea what I was letting myself in for, but ended up there and nearly... Gave it all up after a few months because I was finding it so hard. But what was it? What was it that was hard? Is it just the culture or the work or? Well, I don't think eighteen-year-old boys are very mature. Oh. <laughs> and but yeah, yeah. <laughs> they thought it was quite amusing. And and I think I was the first girl that had ever done a full-time course at Leeds Polytechnic in the you know in the building department, and. When the lecturers came in, could see them looking, you know, oh, there she is, sort of thing. And we'd hand in coursework and he'd pick the first one off the pile and look at it. And then he'd say, oh, and now we'll have the woman's view. And he'd search for mine, you know. And it was just this feeling that I was always on show, you know, that I couldn't not go to the lecture because everybody'd know I wasn't there. I couldn't not do my coursework. And I suppose in some ways that helped because I had to do it. But at the time, it just felt I was being picked on, basically. And it was, I sort of got to the point where I thought, I can't do this anymore. And one morning there was a train strike, a bus strike, sorry. And I thought, that's it. I'm not going ever again. That's the end of it. And my dad came in and said, come on, I've got you a lift to the station. I'll take you to, you know, we'll go to the station. You can get the train in. And I was sat on the train, tears streaming down my eyes because I didn't want to do it. And then something just clicked and I thought, sort of, you know, I can do, I'm going to do it. And went and just ignored it all, really, I think is the best way. I think think sometimes you just find that fire in your belly and you, you won't be put down. And I guess if you've got the support of your dad and people around you there, around you, you know, by hook or by crook, they're going to get you there. You know, and when you feel supported, you can push through things and a yeah. hard time. What actually inspired you to do the course in the first place? Well, I, do, I wasn't going to do it. I, my first choice was architecture. My dad was a bricklayer, so I'd always had that element of building 
in my background. And I've always loved buildings. You know, I mm. still have that love today. And I suppose that's why I'm still working at 71. You know, it's, I enjoy being part of that process. But I plan to do architecture. Probably, I suppose, because I knew there were a few women going into architecture at that time. And right at the last minute, I applied for the quantity surveying course. And when I got my A-level results, I could have done either. I, I was accepted at schools of architecture, a bit different to how things are now with the yeah. universities, but I was ex accepted at Leeds School of Architecture, Hull School of Architecture, and one in Oxford as well. And I'd applied for this quantity surveying course in, in Leeds just as a backup. And I still don't know to this day why I opted to go for the quantity surveying. It was the right choice for me. You know, something guided me and it was what so, I needed. And it's when you just trust your gut instinct, I think, sometimes. Yeah. And as surveyors, I talk about this a lot with surveyors when I coach, some, we lose that ability sometimes with all the rules that we have around us and things that we're meant to do. We forget to trust our gut instinct. And I had very similar because I was going to do a planning course and I ended up doing estate management and surveying and I married a planner instead. And I'm so glad I did not do planning. I'd have been awful. <laughs> but, you know, you, you just think, no, I'm going to bet on myself and do something different. Well, I, I ended up marrying a quantity surveyor. So um. <laughs> <laughs> I was assistant in my work to Leeds City Council for the three months between my first and second year of college. And I met him then. It all had to be kept very secret because you weren't allowed to do things like that in those days. And you know, there's lots of the husband and wife teams actually who are surveyors. Yeah. And I do think, my God, what do people talk at night? Talk <laughs> at night. And what if you're different flavours of surveyors? You know, <laughs> I always found it helped because if you'd had a really bad day, you didn't have to explain. Yeah. What had gone wrong? He knew. You know, he'd been there, done that and could understand why I was so frustrated by even some of the trivial things. That's what yeah. makes you tick and what makes things go wrong sometimes. But yeah, I mean, I, it was all very different then. When, I'd, when I was still at school, I'd planned to leave when I was 16 after my goal levels. And I applied for a job with a building contractor. They were advertising for a trainee surveyor. And I got a letter back saying virtually, no, you're a girl. You can't consider you for this. But if anything comes up in the time, we'll let you know, sort of thing. And that just infuriated me so much. And, you know, I carried on doing what I was doing. But even when I went for the, you know, I went on to the council's career grade at the end of my time at college. But I had to do my year out somewhere. So I did that at the council and I was interviewed by the chief QS. By that time I was engaged. I'd got my engagement ring and then he actually said to me, is that an engagement ring? Yeah. You're not going to do anything about it, are you? And I said, oh, no, and I was getting married three months later. <laughs> but if I'd said, yes, I'm getting married, I wouldn't have got the job. That would have been the end of it. And it might feel quite alien to a lot of younger women and men out there, but there was a time when you got married, you couldn't work. That's right. Yeah. Well, at the time we got married, I, well, when I first started at college, I couldn't open a bank account, pay my grant, my, you know, maintenance grant without my dad signing the forms for me. I couldn't have a credit card without a man signing the forms. And when Ian and I were buying our first house, the solicitor nearly fell off his chair when Ian said, I want it to be in joint pains. Well, that's most unusual, sir. We don't do things like that, you know. I said, well, that's what we want. But, you know, these things change fortunately, but it's taken a long time, Marion. And I don't it, think we're all that much further forward in many. No, and I'm, and I'm stood here. At my standing desk, as I do when I do my podcast, and I've got my hands crossed because, on the one hand, it is really infuriating that actually those kind of things happen, but they're in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. And I often hear 
when it comes to women, gender, and, you know, all of those different things that need to change in terms of diversity, we've got to draw the line. We've got to draw the line and start, you know, afresh and the world's moved on. But I think it's really hard to do because still mm -hmm. in our lifetime, we can remember these things. Mm -hmm. Other people have those old fashioned views. And also if we don't remember the fact that you couldn't have a bank account without your dad signing it or a man, then we forget how easily some things can change. You know, if you look at the laws and Roe v. Wade and all of those things in, in you know, that happening in America, so easily those things can happen over here. And, you know, yes, we need to draw a line to a degree and move forward, but we can't cancel the past. No. We've got to have a, an understanding and I think almost a respect for those who have gone before us, championed different initiatives and, you know, whatever way it is, you know, that we don't forget, and we, but we learn. And we do better and we continue to do better in whatever way that is. For me, in terms of, you know, when I really started to notice female surveyors, you know, I'd had a few sort of tricky times at work. And I remember going to some lunch events that had been arranged and there were eight female surveyors and we were all sat around this big, big table in a booth. But that was highly unusual for me to see those people. All good, all of them good friends now. But out of eight of them, half of them had signed an NDA for sex discrimination in some kind of way. And when I was going through challenges, I did think I couldn't do it because that just buries a problem and it just, we just forget, mm -hmm. you know. But in that group, there was everybody from those starting out to those longer in the tooth. And it was almost like in front of me, every stage of a life stage of a woman, female surveyor. And it just gave me this huge perspective of, you, you know, that we, I don't know, just what we all bring to it and how things change. You know, you've got your young naive, yes, it's all going to be okay. And I'm going to come back after having babies and it'll be fine. And then you had the mum who was not fine. And I was a second child <laughs> catastrophe at the time. You had things like menopause being causing challenges, disabilities, and then ageism. You know, I'm not dead yet at the other end of the yeah. table. And, you know, we've all got something to contribute. And at the RICS last year, they did an event at International Women's Day and there was a, some stats that they shared. And, and it was that the average length of membership for a man at the RICS was 29 years. And for women, it was 16. Do you think, why is that? Are we all dropping off earlier or are we all starting later? I know particularly in residential, a lot of us coming to it, you know, later in life as a profession. But clearly there's a disparity and those are the kind of things that we need to change. Yeah. And you say things, how do you say things haven't necessarily moved on? I mean, how do you view demographics or of women in the profession? And, you know, I know you do a lot of work, you know, when I look at your career and all the things that you've done, how do you... Do you think that? Do you think things haven't changed or the seeds are the particular things that we need to focus on? Well, I think they, there are obviously more women coming into the profession now. So when I started, I was one out of the past 25 boys. And, you know, it, it certainly is better than that if you speak to the academics. But we're still only up at about 13 or 14 percent. Well, the... I think it, I think this is something RICS are refining. I think they, it's something up to like 18%, but it's that for me, it's the who's qualified and how long are they staying? Mm -hmm. And of those who have fellowship, I think there's only 4% who are women, which is a tiny yeah. uh, amount of women, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I've always been proud of being the chartered surveyor. I think at times, particularly in the early days, I didn't get much support. From the RICS, you know, I think in some res respects, women were a bit of an embarrassment. They didn't know quite what to do with us. And it is getting better, you know, it's good from that point of view. But, you know, I'm still in the position where my current line manager is a chartered surveyor, not a chartered quantity surveyor on the more on the estate side. But that's the first time I've ever worked with a female chartered surveyor of any sort, you know, I've never managed one or been managed by until this time. 
as I say, it's a different branch of the VRS, yes. And it can be quite lonely at times, you know, who do you ask these questions of? And, uh, you know, I think the, the campaign that's been going on recently about period products and making things easier for women yeah. when that is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, so that's, I'll put a link into the show notes, but that's a campaign to make sure that sanitary products are available in all toilets on on building sites and things like that. I mean, you know, it's, that's been a long time coming, hasn't it? You know, it's, but, you know, having said that, you still see bits on the, on the internet where women, yeah, they have their own toilets, but it's also the place where they store the toilet rolls and you can hardly get into it. And you have to walk past the engine, your rhino to get there as well. You know, and you think, you know, surely... <laughs> I mean, when I was young and on sites a lot, you just didn't go to the loo. You went to get home. You like till you got home, sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, totally get it. Same with resi surveyors. I think most resi surveyors, you don't go in someone's house, you wait till you get home. And that ain't a good thing to hold your bladder in that, in that long. It's, and it's, I think the conversations are on different levels, you know, so there'll be conversations about imposter syndrome and how to get ahead and careers and all of those things but I think there also needs to be a place where we can talk about when you're feeling a bit shitty and stuff's going on at home and you know you are feeling uncomfortable at work and we are hormonal beings as women which makes us a bit awkward sometimes but most of us just want to feel welcome you know so example of the toilets you just have to think I want everybody to feel welcome what would make you feel welcome and valued in this business yeah, you know, yeah. and it's spaces where you're, you can go for a pee <laughs> in, in peace. And another thought that comes to mind, I remember organizing a little get together up in the Northeast a couple of years ago, and there was a lady QS who I hadn't met before who came and I remember, but she came over, I remember saying to her, oh, I love your dress. And she had this fabulous, she'll be listening to this in, in Barris, but this fabulous like wrap type dress. And it really suited her. And it's one of those things that women say to each other, oh, I love your dress. That's really nice. And she was just overcome because she works with men. She loves working with men. You know, she's done a lot for, you know, families, parents within her business and organization. But men can't really say, oh, I like your dress. without no. being taken the wrong way. And she was, it just reflected on it that it's little things like that as women where we connect and notice you know, that she wasn't getting those compliments and she got all overcome. And I thought, oh my God, <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it's, it's the little it's, things like that, isn't it? Yeah, it's strange the way things change you as well. Because I, my, my first child was born in 1983. So I'd been in the industry from 1970, if you include the time I was at college. And because I felt such an outsider, you know, you sort of develop your conversation so you can talk to the men and you learn a bit about different aspects. So I could hold my own with football and cars and, you know, all the other things that were going on. And when Daniel was born and I started going to mums and toddlers, I didn't know how to talk to the other mums because oh, I'd, yes. I'd lost all the things that they were talking about. And when I eventually went back to work, I thought, oh, to hell with this. I'm me. They accept what I want to talk about. And if they don't want to do that, don't talk to me. That's the thing. Oh, that, that, that totally resonates. I felt I had very little in common with the other mums. My eldest is 13 now. And at the time, I was one of the few working mums in the year, you know, school year group or whatever. And I found that really hard. And when I first started, networking I hate that term networking but when it first started and I couldn't talk about football sport without making an idiot of myself and I did that a few times and working in residential what I found was talking about your first home do you remember the first home that you bought most people have got a story or a disaster story or fun story about not being able to get the sofa in or whatever and that was a bit of, a, a, bit of an icebreaker yeah for me but I did develop a you know, three questions that I would always ask if I'd walked into a room and I was stuck, you know, but it became a bit of an interrogation. <laughs> tell me this, tell me this, tell me this. 
like to refine my style over the years. But, you know, the more that we can show up and just say, actually, I don't know anyone here. You know, nice to meet you. And we're more accepting of it perhaps now, though, those conversations. But even I remember 20 years ago, it wasn't that yeah. easy. And so, so you qualified and then tell me about your sort of early stages of your career then and the kind of work that you did, projects. Yeah, well, I worked for Leeds City Council and, you know, I always say Leeds City Council were really good to me because of their career grade they had. You know, I was relatively well paid through my final year at college and everything else. And I had to go back to them, to them for two years after I became chartered. So I became chartered in 1975 and stayed, I actually stayed with the council until 1978. And it was a fabulous place to work because Leeds is a city full of heritage buildings. And at that time it, it did a lot of housing, it did a lot of schools, fire stations, you know, you name it. There was such a variety working on things like Modderton Hall and Temple News. It was great. I couldn't wish for better experience, really. And I know when I went back to college after my year out, the lads were saying, well, what have you been doing? I said, well, this and this. Didn't do much other than photocopy, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. And, you know, I think I was really lucky that I went there by chance, really. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it, it set the tone of my career after that. And I always say, you know, if you broke me in half, I'd have local authority written inside me like a stick of rock because I don't like working in the public sector. I like the, you know, the type of buildings you provide for people. Even the housing, you know, you knew you were giving better standards of life to, to the people of Leeds. So that, it was, it suited me. So I think, and I've had spells in private practice and working for contractors, but always enjoy public sector work. And I work for MPS now, which is wholly owned by Norfolk County Council. So we, we have a partnership with Lake City Council. So I'm still involved in the same type of work, although the shift, you know, not quite so much housing as they used to be at you know, different areas. Yeah, thoroughly enjoy it. I think I hear a lot, you know, I've had it on the podcast before, I hear it in the um, Surveyor Hub community, you're working for local authorities, you can get a really good grounding of, you know, and variety and different kind of work. And I'd really encourage, I, mean, I never did it, but I'd really encourage people to explore that as, as an option. Yeah. And, and just hearing you talk about, you know, the projects and things that you get involved in, you know, it makes me think of actually about, do women make good surveyors? And we can look at it as a, on a technical point of view, of course. You know, we can, there's no difference, you know, we can, of course we can mm. do it. But we always often think about women being very nurturing and being homemakers. And I always think, well, go out nine inches of brick and you're actually physically making a home, not just, you know, in, inside the home. And caring about the way that people live, not just in our homes, but our communities, you know, the way we get to and from work, the amenities that we have, you know, understanding how people live is really insightful it's not just about the construction side the maths the you know measurements and valuations whatever it is we do it is very much about about people how they live and how these things are you know that we develop it going to work yeah i think you do look at the buildings you're involved in see that role and you know and how things work and perhaps don't work in, in some instances but it i think it also can't change yourself. You can't suddenly, just because you do a man's job, which was, well, you know, the way it was always put in the early days, or oh, you're doing a man's job. You don't become a man, you yeah. know, but you still have your identity and you still regard the way things happen and the way you feel towards other people, you know, as part of your life. And if I can just digress a little bit, my, my son's in academia. He's dean of the business school at one of the universities in the Midlands. And he did some research about female hormones and the effects they have on decision making. And to put it on a story short, the results sort of prove 
that because of the way women are, they don't take the same sort of risks that men take in making their decisions. And had there been more women in finance, the crash probably wouldn't have happened. And if you extend that to had there been more women working at a high level in Carillion, would they have taken the risks they were taking? You know, or would it have been, would that company still have been there, a different sort of company? And I think that works its way through, you know, right down to the lower levels of employees that they look at things differently. And I think there's, yeah, I think that's really insightful. I think there's, there's two things there. One is just embrace who you are. It's, mm. o- it's okay to be a woman, you know, and to be feminine, if that's how you are, very often women do develop a mask that they wear to fit in, you know, so the more personal development you can do to understand yourself better and to be okay with that is really, really important. You that's do have the bit of resilience. In yeah, 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 you do. It's not, it's not easy. But the other thing is the whole sort of question then and point about, you know, there, there being diversity at the table, at the decision-making, mm-hmm. every level. It's that cognitive diversity, not just colour, skin, gender or whatever. It's that diversity of thinking and experiences, not just everyone from a corporate include SMEs. And you know, mm-hmm. I almost think about, you know, some of these working groups and committees that you see, why is it always the oldest, more experienced senior people there? Why can't we have graduates and students who have some fresh thinking and different perspectives to to bring? And it's really hard to create, curate that, but you've got to have that that across the board. And when you look at things like that, you're right. You know, there are examples where it's where you can see things things like that. I think the difference is when you have that diverse thinking, you tend to put people first not just the money, the practicalities, the risk. You put, put people in their lives first and you talk more about feelings and feeling yeah. is something we don't talk about. You know, how does it feel to be in this room that's tiny, you know, when you're, you're designing it? How does it feel to follow these rules and regulations that people don't understand and cut corners anyway? You know, yeah. so it's, um, it's more about sort of being perceptive and like, I, it's interesting. I trained as a, initially I trained as a women's leadership coach. Uh, and the more I talked about being yourself, work-life integration rather than balance. And I actually work with more men. And there are men who, who get it. And for some men, they work in a really toxic masculine culture where they can't, or they don't want to be seen or can't be seen as, you know, being dads and being mm. grandparents. You know, and I want to say, well, I want to finish early so I can take my grandkids to the park. You know, it's hard for them to, you know, not to bring out the tiny violin for the patriarchy, but it's hard for a lot of men who are in that, in that environment. But, you know, we're all breaking patterns. Yeah. All the time we're breaking patterns and we just need to start and support each other. I guess in many ways, COVID's been a great leveler, you know, because a lot of them have had to, (laughs) you know, we've all had to parent from home in in lots of different ways, but then it's also highlighted differences, hasn't it, with women and being not being able to work, you know, and all the different different levels there of things that, that happened. Yeah, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a fabulous career for women, but you make it what you are. You mentioned that you don't do much practicing of QS, quantity surveying at the, mo- at the moment as you've gone on your career. And that's something that I've noticed. I'm... I love surveying, but I don't practice in the traditional sense anymore. But I'm still a surveyor. And when yeah. I went for my fellowship, that was really the journey of, am I a surveyor anymore? <laughs> you know, when I look at my career and what I've done and what I've achieved. We are all surveyors. We just do it in lots yeah. of different ways, in ways that we contribute. And that's part of evolving, isn't it, yeah. in our career? Well, I'll always bring my surveying training and background and knowledge into things but it's not actually going out on site and as you say shimming up ladders uh, as you're in roofing and things like that you know i'm quite glad that my days of remeasuring drainage on site finished <laughs> there wasn't much joy in lifting manholes yeah. sticking a rub down to see how deep it was so you know that, that doesn't you say that, no it's really funny i did i occasionally do some tiktok videos just to let off some tension and release. And I did one 
and it was like to music and it just said you know hackers have uh, taken your you know taking your photos from your phone we want ten thousand pound back and then there was like a sequence of pictures that were basically buildings you know and really rubbish pictures and I shared it and all these surveyors said yeah I've got all these pictures of drains I'm not open manholes <laughs> you're like oh you know you're a surveyor when yeah and you've got got that stuff but sorry <laughs> just reminded me that all right. I mean I suppose when you get to my stage in your career you you can't help but develop a very broad knowledge of the construction industry. So at the moment, I'm helping my manager with the professional indemnity insurance renewal, you know, because that brings all the different disciplines together within the company. I'm also helping them roll out a one company quality system. Norse, the Norse group I work for has lots of different individual companies and we've all had our own quality accreditation, but it's all coming together under one system. So I've, you know, I've been spending a bit of time doing that, but we're also looking at processes, how we can bring a bit more standardization into processes across the group. So yeah. that all takes, you know, the knowledge of how the industry works and how architects work with surveyors and engineers. So, yes, I do still work around quantity surveying, but not in the stuff I was trained to do when I was the junior and first started. You get to a point where your identity shifted in that a lot of surveyors define themselves as surveyors because they do the technical stuff. And... You know, a lot of us tend to go into training or we go into different, you know, sort of side roles, if you like, advisory roles or whatever. Did you ever have that, that maybe I'm not the same kind yeah. of surveyor I used to be? Yeah, I did. It was sort of 20, 20 years ago, perhaps, where I was back working for Leeds, having had my children and I'd gone back part time. And the man I worked for, he was asked to set a trip. An intelligent client unit. There was a lot of talk about intelligent clients at that time. And I was asked to join. What's an intelligent client? It's, We'd all it's like a, one of them. <laughs> yeah. It's a recognition, I suppose, that most people who commission buildings don't really know about the construction process. So the intelligent client unit is a group that sit between you know, maybe an architect or even a building contractor on a smaller scale. You know, if you're thinking of yourself commissioning a new house, you know, yeah, fine. Yeah. You know, that element of knowledge of the construction, the construction industry. But a lot of people don't have that knowledge. Mm. And it's a sort of go-between that knows the right questions to ask, that knows how to put a contract together so that they, the client is protected. Yeah. Um. So... He was asked to set up this intelligent client within Leeds City Council and asked me if I wanted to be part of that. And at that point, I stopped being a surveyor. I'd been working for him on the final account for the magistrate's courts in Leeds, which was sort of new builds in the 80s. And at that point, I stopped doing that and became one of these go-betweens, which needed... All the knowledge I had of the construction industry, I couldn't have done it without it. Yeah, but yeah. Shifted in a slightly different direction. And I suppose I do still do the odd sort of estimate, you know, a bit like sticky yeah. thing. Yeah, so <laughs> the thing. So I, and that's because I have that background knowledge, but it's not like. The, yeah, it's, it's like you can't do it without that experience. But then you get to that point and sometimes there's a bit of judgment over, are you a surveyor or not? And there's things like, you know, if you're not practicing, you can't be regulated in the same way with the RICS and it starts to get those divides. But so what's a surveyor? Always a surveyor and always having your camera full of pictures of random, random things. My um, camera full of my daughter's dog at the moment. She got a German Shepherd dog about a year ago. And she oh, we do love an animal picture. <laughs> that's, what you, that's what gets the most likes on LinkedIn. Yeah, I've got more more photographs of my daughter's dog than my grandchildren. 
with so maybe that needs to be a sign of are you a surveyor or not is how much junk property junk you've got on your <laughs> on your phone you have to submit that to, to RICS um uh, as you've gone on in your career you mentioned you know you you qualified in 75 right to say I was born in 75 and you know so well, you're 70 71 I think you said how do you feel about the tail end of your your career because as surveyors, we've often talked about it being an aging profession, which is a, I don't think it's a very nice term, but everyone's getting a bit older. How has, you know, you mentioned you know, some of the challenges early on and things that you've experienced. How has it been towards this sort of last leg? That sounds awful. Don't know, how can I, I'm not sure how to say it without saying, Catherine, you're getting old and you're going <laughs> to retire soon. But you know what I mean? How do you deal with it when you get to that end? Well, I tell everybody I'm getting old. I've never been one to say, I'm not telling you how old I am. Yeah. I'm there, I'm out. I know for people to know. Yes, I'll readily admit I can't go shinning up ladders anymore, but I still feel I've got a lot to give. In terms of, you know, 50 years of knowledge that I've built up and that experience, and, you know, knowing how to do things and where to go if I haven't got that information. When I first started at college, the first lecturer I was ever in, the lecturer said, we're not here to teach you facts. We're here to teach you where to find those facts. And I think that is such a good point that, you know, if you know where to look to find something, it doesn't matter that you don't know it at that time. Um, and, you know, I do think it's sad that some people expect that you should just have all the answers at the tips of your fingers. It's, yeah, no, I can find out. I know what to do. I know how yeah, to I do think it. that's so, so important. And mm -hmm. I always liken it to, there used to be a program on in the 80s or 90s called You Bet. I can't remember if it was a Brucey one that you presented, but you had people come on and the, they had three celebrities and they would bet. Could this person remember or identify 200 different types of car tail lights. You know, there's all these people with like geeky facts, yeah. things that they could do and you'd bet. And it's like, you know, does every surveyor know all of the building regulations? You know, every single piece of the RICS red book. No, we don't. And mm -hmm. your brain isn't there to hold all of those things. It's a processor. And so knowing where to go for that information, which changes all the time, is the key. But being able to confidently say, I know where to go. I know this has changed. I know where to go. I'm going to find out. And I think that's probably one of the best advice that we can give to anyone going through their APC or earlier on in their career. Because so many people worry about being an expert, you know, but you're an expert in the field that you work in, not in a encyclopedia knowledge. I think it's quite hard the first time you look at someone and have to say, I don't know the answer to that. Um, find it out and get back to you within an hour or something like that you know yeah. and once you've done that you realize that you don't have to know everything about every woodland everything that's going on and it's quite empowering really and some and sometimes you can ask people to say what do you think what do you know most people have the answer from a you know a kind of direction what about i mean obviously in those you know nearly 50 years that you been a surveyor lots of things have changed and you know we often think those who are in charge they get the job because they've been there the longest but at some point I guess the younger people get promoted above you and sometimes we're okay with that and sometimes we're not on on skill level and things change you know like you know I remember going out when the first tablet technology came out 15 plus years ago and I had to, because I'd seen a coloured computer screen, I had to go out and train some of the surveyors on how to use these tablets. And some of them had literally never used anything like yeah. that at all. And I learned that I was a really good surveyor because some of them were yeah. awful, <laughs> you know. And we get into that sort of then reverse mentoring side, you yeah. know, of there's a point where you think, oh, everything that I've known for the last however many years has changed and here's somebody new with new thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got to be... As we go through our careers, we've got to be open to that, that we don't know everything and guess what, it might change. Well, I, I will say that I find IT difficult. I still do. You know, this is coming from a background where when I started out, didn't even have pocket calculators. You know, everything was done with a slide rule when I was at 
college and people said, what's one of those? Never heard of one. But and I think at the moment, change happens so fast that I do stop from an IT point of view. But once it's explained, you know, someone will take the time to explain it, then I'm absolutely fine and move on and then there's no problem. Yeah, I think times change, don't they? You've got to move with those changes. Or I suppose I would have stopped working 20 years ago. It's... I guess it's the approach that people take or businesses take to people who might struggle with the concept of IT. You know, like I remember with the new tablets that came out, I remember when we went on email, I remember we got mobile phones and... You know, I say that laughing because I remember my mum talking about, well, I remember when we didn't do this and didn't do that. Yeah. And I, <laughs> it catches us all, not anybody who's a bit, a bit younger, but it all depends on the, I think, compassion and patience that a company has with somebody to help that support them, you know, going forward. I mean, a great example or not is RICS going digital and stopping all the magazines, you know, on the one hand, there's the. Well, it's printing paper, it's ethical recycling and costs, all of those things. But on the other hand, not everybody can get on the right website at the right page and click the right link to find the information that they need. And so you've got to either support people to get there or really think about the individuals and what they need, you know? Well, I've been charted long enough to know. It's gone through phases, Marion, you start off at one point where you get the Chartered Surveyor magazine that's about everything, all the different branches, and you literally just flick through and find a bit that's relevant. And then we went through a phase where there was a Chartered Quantity Surveyor magazine, and that was great. You know, it was problems of how do you measure, sounds pretty mundane, but how do you measure this, that, and the other? And you got lots of practical tips and advice and things like that, or there'd be an article on cost planning and all those sorts of things. And then it went back to being the sort of combined bunch. And usually there might be one article to do with quantity surveying in it. And then you turn to the obituaries and things like that to see if anybody you knew had died. And then, you know, it's obviously progressed to, and if I'm absolutely honest, I don't think I look at it now. No. I don't think I look at it couple of opening it because I spend enough time staring at the screen for work without sitting mm. and having to read the magazine. And it's a different way of reading, isn't it? You know, the blue mm. light on the screen and all of that. But I was going to say, I'd usually flick to the back to the jobs. Everyone will go straight yeah. to the jobs and work. <laughs> and work, yeah. work back the other way. One of the hard things I think as surveyors is, or the surveying profession, is that some of us call it a profession. Some call it industry, talk about construction industry, but you know, where do surveyors fit, in, fit into that? But it's multidisciplinary. There are so many surveyors doing so many different things. It then becomes difficult to, well, how do you effectively connect with the QSs, the resi, the auctioneers, the mining, mm. the whatever it is in a meaningful way and give them content and things that they need or want. But then also finding ways to not tie us all together, but for us to recognize that we're all in the here for the public advantage in terms of the built environment, you know, mm. and helping and supporting people and all the, all the things that we, we do. So it's a really tricky thing to, to communicate. And I, and ultimately everybody just wants to belong. We want yeah. to belong. We want to feel that sense of identity, proud of the work we do and make a difference. And then on the other hand, you've got, you know, with RICS and, you know, it's the same for other bodies, rules, regulations, the way that things are done. And it's almost hard to be, you know, the regulator and a friend at the same time. And I think that's always perhaps been RICS's challenge. Now, what happens in the future? I don't know. But I do think lots of us can do lots of things. You know, if I can have a podcast and a Facebook group and various things, other people can. You know, there's a lot that we can do rather than just looking to one body or organisation to do everything for all of us. But that's why I don't particularly relate to the RICS magazine 
Have you ever been involved with the RICS on a regional board or anything like that over the years? No, not really. I I don't know how to say this. But oh, what I'm uh, saying. No, <laughs> I, I think it got to. The, I was very enthusiastic when I first started out, but the RICS was so dismissed at that time you sort of harden your heart to it really and just think well I need the qualification because that's what gets me the jobs and things like that so I've sort of carried on at that at that sort of pace and you know I suppose I've been disappointed sort of a few years ago I won women in construction award and I told the RICS about it nothing no, nothing came back from them at all. And I thought, I'm just not a part of this organisation. You know, I think you, your relationship gets a bit sour. In the early days, it used to annoy me when I get letters to Mrs. K. Ladley Esquire. You know, they've not made that sort of connection. It was a woman. <laughs> Maybe we ought to think about altering this. So I have a love-hate relationship. You know what, I think most people would say that. I think we start off our careers aspirational. We're going to be part of a movement and, you know, whether it's the membership organization or the companies or universities, I don't know, but we start off with all these dreams and then there's like a reality check somewhere along the way. And that becomes quite sad. And I've been through that, you know, absolutely. I had, you know, more recently at governing council and I was on a local regional board for a bit, but before that, I... I had no, I mean, I didn't even go to, when I got chartered, go to the events to get your little certificate because I didn't know anyone <laughs> and yeah. I hadn't engaged with anyone. And I look back now, I think, oh, that's really, you know, welcome to the profession, I think, you know, it was called. Yeah. I'm really sad, but also that I suppose depends on your organisation and whether they're or do they're ICS or not. So I suppose mm. more on the construction side, not everybody is a surveyor, whereas I was a valuer. All the surveyors were all valuers and all, you had to be an RICS member. So yeah. I suppose it fluctuates uh, across the board. But it, it's a trick to find what's relevant, you know, and, uh, and what's not. And things have changed, you know, even now, actually, you know, they're talking about female surveyors. You know, a few years ago, they, they weren't. And uh, there's different views over women's organisations, women's awards, you know, and all of those things. But these people are doing something to raise awareness, mm. however it however it tumbles out. And these people mm. are doing something. But that's quite quite an award that you got. It was it was surprising. Yeah, I mean it was lovely. We had a very nice evening in London for the award. I was one of the founder members of QSI, Quantity Surveys International. And in February I'm going to the House of Lords for a ceremony to give me a lifetime fellowship. That's amazing. I'm really looking forward to that. But, you know, that's the way my life's gone in many ways because when my children were young, I was only working part-time, but I was also running a national charity. I'd, I'd miscarried my first pregnancy and I ended up running the Miscarriage Association for oh, wow. a few years. And I was also... I trained as an antenatal teacher for the National Childless Trust. So I've always had other things going on. I've been chair of governors at the village school. I'm not now, but I was that for 13 years. So it wasn't a case of I do my job and I just sit back at the end yeah. of the day. But I had plenty going on in my life. And my, mo my mother always used to complain. She'd say, you know, you do too much. It's not the knowledge you used to be, you know. And, you know, you can't have it all. You can't do it all. And I think my answer was, well, yes, you can, if you're prepared to work and you want it badly enough. And that's always been the case. I've wanted to do this job. And, you know, despite all the people at the beginning saying, you can't do this, you're a woman, you won't be able to stamp the mud, you won't be able to do this, you won't be able to do that. I wanted it. It was what I really wanted. And that's why I'm still doing it now.
Oh, that that is just fabulous, Catherine. And it just goes to show, I think, the way that generations change, you know, of you can't do that, you're doing too Mm -hmm. much. The stories that we're told as children or when we're, you know, young into our career, they become like limiting beliefs over what's possible. And, you know, can you have it all? It depends what all is for you. And also what what motivates you. If there's a sense of purpose to it, it will push you through. If you know that what you're doing is meaningful work, and that's a lot of what I talk to surveyors about in my coaching yeah. is if you want to run a business and make loads of money, you can go and learn to do that anywhere. But if you want to do meaningful work that makes a difference, work out your values and what's important to you. That's mm-hmm. the kind of thing that will really drive you forward. And lots of surveyors I know do lots of things outside of their, their day-to-day work, running committees, doing different things. I did you know the NCT group when I was on my maternity leave and I ran it because there was nobody here for me you know you you can yeah. create and do these things and as a side I know there's you know quite a few female surveyors who struggle with, with fertility and miscarriage and they don't have places to go and what I, but what I would say is we do have Lionheart which is available to you know to, to surveyor, surveyor members but if you think about all of the, the all of that experience and even just a snippet of it to bring into a local regional group or to the surveying community you know, those are the kind of things that make a difference. My my first board experience was the NCT committee and being a school governor, you know, and that was the only way that I could get that first step. When I interviewed women or I had, not just women, but you know, people who had their CVs when I run a complaints department, you know, if they'd been made redundant, you know, I, what were they doing in that time? You know, what do they do outside of work? You know, it's not all about the work you do. It's about the other interests as well. And that could be really valuable. You know, think about mums who uh, take some time out. Brilliant multi-skilled organisers. Yeah. You know, you're just going to see past and look, you know, what they were doing and just look at skills. One of the things, few things that I really resented through my career was that when I went back to work, I mean, I worked all through the time that my children, were babies, part-time, you know, and I worked for a, a private QS firm and did some estimating and things like that. And I worked for a building contractor. So I worked all the time, but only two or three days a week, something like that. And when I got to the point where I knew I wanted to go back to working properly, if you like, gave up the miscarriage association at that time because I knew that my qualifications and my love of building meant more to me than that. But to get a job, I had to go back at least two pay grades. Even though I'd been doing it all the time, you know, it wasn't a case of, oh, I've not worked for 10 years. I'd worked all the way through, but I had to drop down and then start and build my way up again. And I think that's so hard for women trying to come back into the profession. You know, I think that could just make them decide, you know, I've got somewhere else and do something that's easier. Yeah, I see this a lot, actually. I know there are a few schemes out there, women returners to work, where different organisations have helped introduce women who've had time off or extended leave, rather, you know, back into work. But it is hard, you know, yeah. thinking about, because you're, you're a different person when you yeah. go back to work. After having kids, your priorities are different, you know, and some of us, I mean, with my son, I literally skipped back to work. Because I couldn't wait with my daughter. It was a lot harder. And we've got to, yeah, ourselves adjust to it. But also that's where employer support is so important. You know, when I, when I went back to work, I had a lovely boss. He was great. And I used to drop the children at school and then drive into Leeds. So I'd start at half past nine and I'd finish at half past two. I worked five days a week, short hours, and I'd finish at, half till three o'clock so that I could get home to pick my daughter up at half past three. And every day it got to, you know, time for me to leave. And he'd be looking at his watch and say, oh, are you going already? And I said, yeah. I've got to pick my daughter up. She'll be stood outside school if I don't go now sort of thing. And it was always the worry, what if the motorway's closed? And I that anxiety is horrible. I, yeah. I don't but miss it, that at all. <laughs> it's all time. I ought to be. You know, I'm talking to you about this. You need to stay until I finished talking. And I think, no, I've got to go. And it almost, 
I think sometimes when you work part-time, it's like everybody becomes a clock watcher. You know, how many times do you make a cup of tea? How long does it take to go up the loop? You know, and it's like, it was those hours are all reduced into what you actually contributed. Yeah. You've micromanaged yeah. to a degree. It doesn't say, you're not the ones that are there now. It's probably have more tea, but I think it's like Sometimes that. it's just looking busy, isn't it? Yeah. Um, over there, one of the things that I find a bit frustrating is where you come across women later on in their careers who are very... Well, it was hard for us, so we'll just, you just get on with it. You know, things have changed. Everybody is different in terms of their perspectives. And sometimes just battling through doesn't solve the problem, doesn't, no. doesn't help, you know. What advice would you give to women further down the line from your experience? I don't know, really. I mean, it is a case of how much you want to do what you're doing. And if you really want it, sometimes you've just got to put up with something to, to get through that curve. What's the, what's the bigger picture, the bigger goal? Yeah. You shouldn't have to do that, but sometimes that's just the way it is. You know, as I say, I could have given up in the early stages, but because things could have been different, that you just think, well, I want this. It's the only way I'm going to get it. What am I going to do if I don't carry on doing what I'm doing? You know, just put up with it. And I suppose I was very fortunate that I had my husband who understood what people were like. And this probably sounds a bit dramatic, but I don't think I've ever met any other than my husband that could have been as supportive in my life, you know, because he used to get, because they knew him, where I worked at Lake City Council, he worked there. You know, there used to be things like, mm. how does Ian feel that you're earning more money than him? You know, that sort of thing. You know, the answers used to be, well, he lasts all the way to the bank, you know. <laughs> and they used to get upset that their wives were shop assistants or hairdressers or something like that. And I was earning a man's wage, you know, that's not fair sort of thing. Well, it's life, you know, you just put up with it. I had to go through a lot to get to the point where I was earning more. You know, my had no money at all, so it was a struggle to stay on the school and do everything I did. You know, I think the student grant was something like £99 a term in 1970. <laughs> you know, you rent your books, your food and everything, transport and things, so... It's a good job money went a bit further in those days. Yeah, yeah, it's all alternative, I guess. Yeah. I think, you know, in, in a way, you've got to be certain it's what you want to do. You yeah, know, what, that why are you doing it? It can't just be about the money because there are lots of different ways that you can earn money um, and yeah. earn more money elsewhere, probably doing different things. And it's coming back to that why do you do what you do? What is it that motivates you? And that will help you move forward. Do you feel optimistic or not about the future of construction and surveying, you know, as you've seen it changed over the years? So, I mean, it, there will always be a need for buildings of some nature. Well, so that, you know, construction itself has to go on, whether we're building things that are recognisable. You know, in 50 years ahead, not, it's a different matter, isn't it? But part of me feels sad that ways change. You know, I, back in the early days, I was a real bills of quantities type person that loved that part of the job. And I suppose there's a bit of sadness that we don't do that sort of thing anymore. But the tying together of uh, building things and the money you spend on it what's available are always going to be there. There's always going to be that, those sort of questions asked and answered in the process. But it is quite worrying when you, because of the current financial climate and everything, you do wonder what's going to happen over the next few years. And there are so many people leaving the industry that, you know, there's a shortage of different skill sets is really worrying. And I can't see necessarily that building back anywhere near the levels it's been in the past, which is sad. 
Yeah, and if we look at the past, you know, in lots of different professions and sectors, there's been skill gaps. You know, and it always takes a while to build back up and then it drops off again and it builds back up <laughs> and drops yeah. off again. And, you know, unless, you know, we're recording this in the UK, unless the UK government really puts housing uh, disruption on the agenda in the right way, focusing on people. I mean, you know, we've had like 20 plus housing ministers in this many years. <laughs> Absolutely crazy. You know, how can anyone, how can there be consistency and will focus if it's not on the agenda and having someone to care about it. As we sit today, everybody's talking about AI and ChatGPT has just been launched where it can, you ask it a question and it can write you all sorts of documents, articles, blogs. On LinkedIn right now, everybody has been really helpful with his five top tips for whatever it is. And it's been written by computers. But when I look, if you look back at each, at lots of different stages in terms of construction and things, it was all about new and innovation. You know, I don't think our, you know, some buildings were built to last. Some definitely weren't. You know, if we think about 1950s houses, we think about some of the Victorian ones, they weren't built to last. I think some of them would probably be horrified that they would still be standing, you know, 100 and 150 years later. And so we've already got to be thinking about the future, but it's still scary, you know, to think about industrial revolution and everything went, you know, mechanical and automated. Mm. Things change and we've got to adapt. The key to it, I guess, is not to resist it. I think there's some moral and ethical things we've got to think about with AI and that kind of thing, but it's finding ways that it can help us do our job better and not fear it, but also not forget the old skills at the same time. Yeah. You know, because there was a reason why they came about and power cuts happen. At the end of the day, computers go down and, you know, we sometimes we've still got to get on with our job, haven't we? I, when I came into the industry in the 70s, there was a lot of system building going on. Lots of leads were throwing up houses that were done by spooners, wimpy no fines, all sorts of things like that. And most of my career, I've been involved in schemes that were doing annual repairs and maintenance of those types of things. You know, Leeds has had SLAs for repairing the area type houses and year after year, pick another batch and repair them and carry on. And you almost get a sort of sinking in your heart sort of 15 years ago when they start talking about modular construction the way forward yeah. back up all these pods and you know and just stick them on site yeah there is that element that you can't control the manufacturer when it's in a nice warm factory and things like that but you've still got somebody on a cold damp snowy windy building site that perhaps isn't quite as skilled as they ought to be and doing it's just doing their best yeah yeah and it's not just a case of looking at one part of the industry. It's how we're going to make it fit together and work for everyone else. And, uh, you know, I, I, guess, I don't think and we stumble into things without thinking yeah. too much. And I guess, I guess it's similar to, you know, what we sort of started talking about at the start of the conversation was you can draw the line, but we can't forget, you know, we can draw the line and say, right, modular housing, Everything's 3D printed and we're going to use AI to do everything. But we've still got this stock of old houses and old buildings that actually be quite light. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it makes us feel good. You know, it's finding that balance between the past and the future, isn't it? Yeah. It's, I think that, you know, that's very true. We're all individuals and we've quite a long way to go to get to the point where everybody wants to live in exactly the same type box type house of travel that would, just be, that would just be boring wouldn't it though if we all mm. did the same thing that, and actually that's probably why we've got such a variety of buildings and property here in the uk because we like we don't want to be the same it's what makes that's us human isn't it it's why we put plants outside our front door isn't it just to make our house look a bit different to someone else's absolutely and that ridiculous cladding that some people have and 
like it was it Vera and Jack on Coronation Street <laughs> I remember when that came out because one of my neighbours we lived in a council house in the row and one of the neighbours on the end had it and it was like oh it's like Jack and Vera <laughs> so what will yeah. happen when you think about retiring do you think about retiring how all do you know that. when it's time <laughs> all happen with a sense of dread <laughs> what things make you think about retiring is it work being too much too heavy tiredness or I think it's I read something the other day it's one of these cliche statements that that people don't leave jobs necessarily because of the work it's the management that goes with that you know I am perfectly happy the management system you know where I work and that's but I think if that changed yeah uh, you know, if for whatever reason it wasn't as pleasurable, then I would make them. I quite like being in a position where, and, you know, I don't want this to sound boasting or anything. I'm not doing it for the money. I do it because I like my job. Yeah. But it's good being in the position to think, if I don't like it, I can see. But that's and, what your that's what your experience and career has afforded you. Yeah. get to a position where you get to choose and that must feel quite empowering. I don't like that. We don't have to put up with it. <laughs> I think it's part of my Yorkshire upbringing, you know, that I don't call a spade a spade to shovel. So you might end up a bit cantankerous in your old age. Oh, I think I'm already there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Catherine, it's been lovely to catch up and speak with you today. I've really you. enjoyed it. You. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I'll see you next time. If you found this helpful, then do leave us a review on Apple iTunes or pop along to the website lovesurveying.com and you can find all sorts of resources tucked away in there. Thanks.